I cannot slack on the strength training. I can't slack on the mobility stuff. I need to do that. That is absolutely a gift of my arthritis. I can't cut corners in those areas. So it is something that I have to stay on top of. That was Jennifer Walton. And this is episode 62 of the Inspired Souls podcast. Hi, I'm Carolyn, and I'm a roadrunner. And I'm Kim, and I'm a trail runner. Welcome to our podcast, where we bring the communities of trail and road running together and explore the parallels between running and life. Today, we welcome Jen Walton to the show. Jen is a road runner turned trail ultra runner from Winnipeg, Manitoba. She is a former professional ballet pianist who was diagnosed with juvenile rheumatoid arthritis at the age of two. After spending her childhood developing the skills and discipline needed to become a concert pianist, Jen found herself struggling with overuse injuries and debilitating arthritic pain. Thanks to the influence of a few great physios and friends, she made some big changes to her lifestyle, discovered running, and can now gratefully say that she has not seen a rheumatologist or taken medication in decades. Everyone has their own path to discovery when it comes to running. Some fall in love in their youth. Some find, after a period of struggle and refinement, putting on a pair of running shoes and hitting the road or a trail is like coming home. Home to a place their body and their soul needed to be for a very long time. Jen talks to us about how motion really is lotion, and we are so thrilled to share her story with you. So Jen, welcome to the Inspired Souls podcast. We're so happy to have you join us tonight. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Well, I'm actually really thrilled to talk to you because we have crossed paths, I don't know how many times, doing circles around Beaudry Park on an early Saturday or Sunday morning, just the two of us out there. And I've never really had the chance to truly get to know you. And I'm kicking myself now because as we did our research for this episode, you sound like an absolutely fascinating person. And uh, I remember one morning in particular, I don't know what a godly hour it was, and we were running in opposite directions around this 5K loop of Beaudry Park, just the two of us, two cars in the parking lot, and we would pass each other, hi, and then, you know, about 30 minutes later, hi, (laughs) repeat, repeat, and I remember thinking like, okay, this is starting to get awkward. I need to just turn around and start running with this woman or something. And so, um, yeah, you were just saying, Jen, you remember me stopping you going, what in the world are you training for? Because not many people are out here running in circles as long as I am. And uh, yeah, we were both training for, I don't remember. It was an ultra of some kind. You were, I was training for Beaudry Fall Classic, my first one, and you were training for Tahoe 100. Right. Yes. So anyhow, if I had just turned around and started going counterclockwise, I would have had an amazing conversation with you, I'm sure. But this way, our listeners are going to get in on the conversation as well. So I'm really um, looking forward to this next hour with you. Yeah. So why don't we get started by you just giving our listeners a little bit of a background. Tell us about yourself, Jen. For sure. So my name is Jen uh, Walton. I live in Winnipeg with my partner, Kevin. I uh, work in the not-for-profit sector. I've spent my entire career in the not-for-profit sector. I'm now with the Winnipeg Foundation, and I love the work that I do. And when I'm not there, I like to run 
spoiler alert to a lot of trails, um, is where I'm happiest right now. I'm also a musician. Kevin and I met when we were playing in a Celtic band. Um, he comes from a rock background. I come from a classical background. We found each other in traditional music. And those are the big things. I think running, music, nonprofit, that's me. <laughs> Okay, so now is the, the part of the interview where we love hearing about your origin story in running. So could you just take a minute and tell us how in the world you got into running? Because I understand that you didn't start on the trails. No, and, I, and I'm also, I describe myself as an adult onset athlete. Mm -hmm. So I have always been fascinated with long distance I grew up in St. Patel, which is, I actually looked it up today. <laughs> the house that I grew up in was about five miles, 8K from downtown. We had a neighbor who used to run to work. And I remember being absolutely fascinated with that, that he could run all the way downtown. Like it just seemed so far. And then when my, uh, my youngest brother and sister are twins, and so we literally outgrew our house uh, overnight and moved into a house that was on the Manitoba Marathon route and right before about mile 22. And so I got really fascinated with it, but again, didn't really do anything. I was a musician. I was very busy with music. I was very dedicated to music. I wasn't very coordinated. I'm still not very coordinated. And I never thought of myself as somebody that could try anything like that. And so I didn't until I was in probably my late 20s. I had uh, recently quit smoking. And I found that the days that I went to the gym, I didn't want a cigarette as badly. So I started going to the gym very regularly. And then one day, the Stairmaster was broken. And so I jumped on a treadmill. <laughs> and <laughs> I ran a mile because there's nobody else around. I ran a mile without stopping and I like could not get over myself. I was so excited. Um, and I had gotten to know the trainer at that gym and I told her I ran a mile. I was so excited. And she said, what are you going to do next? And I didn't dare say the marathon. I was like, this to me was, you might as well like I'm going to fly around the world. I mean, it was so far removed from anything that I thought I could do. So I said, well, maybe I could run a half marathon. And she was so amazing. She just said, well, of course you could do that. Totally casual, just like, well, yeah, run a half marathon. And that planted the seed. We need those people in our lives, right? Oh my, well, she changed it for me. Yeah. Like, and I'm sure she didn't, she was just saying what she thought. And she completely changed the course of my life wow. because in February, so that was about in the fall of 2000. I had quit smoking in April, fall of 2000. February of 2001, I registered for the half marathon clinic through the running room and I ran my first half marathon in 2001 and then first full marathon in 2002 and we snowballed from there. So um, moderation is not my best thing. I <laughs> don't tend to tiptoe into anything or do anything sort of a little bit. And but that's that's how it happened. Did you ever go back and thank her? Like she may not even realize that she had that kind of effect on you, but it sounds like it just didn't even phase her. It's like, of course, you're going to run a like. Whereas internally, you may have been thinking, oh, I, like, I shouldn't say marathon because I definitely can't do that, but maybe half, but still having such a 
hesitation about it or you didn't believe in yourself. And for her to answer like that, it almost seems like she gave you that belief that it was possible. 100%. So I wasn't able to thank her personally. I never did find her again. But I did know that she was married to Brian Doby, who is the coach of the Manitoba Bisons football team has been for many, many years. And I worked for about a decade at the U of M. And so I was able to tell Coach Dobie that his wife had changed my oh. life. And so she, he was able to pass it along to her. Oh, very cool. Well, maybe she'll hear this podcast. <laughs> maybe she will. <laughs> okay. So we know, Jen, that there's so much more to your running story that we want to share with our listeners. But I want to put where you are now in context of where you've been. So why don't we go way back to the very beginning? You had a unique start to life as a child with juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. Mm -hmm. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that and what that was like? Yeah. So it's funny, right? Because you think arthritis, you don't think two-year-old, but that's exactly when I was diagnosed. So when I was probably 18 months old, we were at the lake and my dad was like holding me up to a tree and I was kind of hanging on the branch, but my parents noticed I wouldn't straighten one arm. I would only hang from my right arm, but I wouldn't hang from my left. And that seemed strange to them. Obviously, it's very strange for that in a child. I then also started to develop other symptoms. So a lot of my little kid pictures, my chin is on my chest. Remember when apple juice used to come in those giant cans? <laughs> Are either of you old enough to remember those? So I had like knocked one of those out of a cupboard and it fell on my foot and my foot was very swollen, but the swol swelling never did go down. So my poor parents, I'm their firstborn, they're running me all over the place, trying to find somebody to diagnose, like figure this out. I had an aunt who was very severely arthritic and said, you know what that looks like to me? And then they started asking very specific questions. And lo and behold, she was absolutely right that it was rheumatoid arthritis. It was 1975. And so the way that they diagnosed that is they admitted me to children's, they cut my foot open and looked inside and then sewed me back up again. Like exploratory surgery it was, is what it was called. And that's how they diagnosed my arthritis. And so my whole childhood, um, I still, I cannot stand creamed honey to this day because the treatment for rheumatoid arthritis in children at that time was massive doses of basically aspirin. And so because I was too little to swallow pills, my mom would crush it up oh. into oh. creamed honey. So I'd have these like three spoonfuls of like crunchy honey every day. Oh, <laughs> I'm like tasting this. I tell you, it was so terrible. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, cannot stand cream honey. So, so that was, and then of course, regular visits to children's because of course you're putting massive doses of aspirin into a tiny little growing body. You really have to monitor that. So I was going to children's for blood tests and my, I had a pretty significant leg length discrepancy. So they were keeping an eye on that. There's often really serious eye problems with kids and arthritis. So they were checking that. And then my absolute favorite is I got to go for physio all the time. I had a physio who I loved. Her name was Rosa. 
my whole childhood, I had no idea, no offense <laughs> to the physios on the call, um, but I had no idea physio made you better. I thought physio was a reward because you have arthritis and that sucks and you have to have a blood test and that hurts and you cry, but then you get to go play in the pool with Rosa. Like that's literally what I thought physio was my entire childhood. She was that great. She was amazing. <laughs> Shout out to Rosa. That's awesome because I have some patients that would curse me every day. So <laughs> that's pretty good. Just take them in the pool and call them slowpoke and then they'll think you're awesome. <laughs> so... Yeah, so that's how it started. I mean, um, and I went into remission and it came back when I was a teenager and it was sort of different, um, but it has been a constant through my life is I am a person with arthritis. So where are you at with that now? Like you said, it's flared at different kind of maybe developmental stages of your life. And so now as a, as a grown woman, are you still experiencing any symptoms on a day-to-day basis? Hooray. No, I'm not. Um, so I, um, I had a bad flare probably right when I hit puberty. I think there's probably a hormonal tie for me is my guess. When it came back, when I hit puberty, it wasn't my neck or my elbow anymore. It was my knee. And that was sort of a thing through my teens. And then into my twenties, I was living the lifestyle of someone in her twenties. And I had just left music school, which is another story. But yeah, so I was living that lifestyle. I was smoking. I was partying. I was probably over 200 pounds. And I'm not a very big person, so that's quite a bit. And it was terrible. And I was legitimately looking at going on disability um, when I decided, yeah, it was really bad. I used to go home from work and just like lie down on my floor, even lying on my bed hurt lie on my floor, it hurt less. And I just lie there and cry. And I was 25. And so I I did reach a point where it's like, well, I've got to try something else. I'm 25. I'm not just going to like retire and be arthritic. (laughs) Like I'm not really interested in that. Let's see if there's another option. Well, it sounds almost like you had this almost quarter life crisis, right? Like here you are 25 <laughs> and you're just like, I'm overweight. I'm a, you were a smoker at that point. Right. And so, yep. um, talk to us about, because sometimes, especially in retrospect, those really rock bottom moments are a blessing, mm-hmm. aren't they? So talk to us from your grown woman's self, what the yeah. gifts were in that challenging time. Oh, that's a really good question. I'm pretty proud of myself that I did make the decision. Obviously, the gifts are obvious, right? I have a life now I never would have had if I hadn't decided on that day in April in 2000 where it's like, I need to stop. I need to try something else. That is the biggest gift for sure. What did you stop on? What did you try? Fill us in on the next steps that you took. So the smoking was the big one. I was watching, like, it was one of those, like, it was like those terrible reality shows on TLC when it first started, but it was like emergency room stories and like real life. And somebody came in to the emergency room and they had like, I don't know, they had been doing something stupid. I can't remember. They were like drunk and they fell off a balcony or they like weren't wearing their seatbelt or it was something. Dumb. Anyway, and I was sitting there watching this show totally judging this person and like being terrible in my head. Like, oh, you're such an idiot. Like, why would you take that extra risk? And then I like took a big drag of my smoke. 
and realize, and like, that was it. That was the moment I realized like, I am a hypocrite right now. Like, how am I judging this stranger? And I'm sitting here putting this in my body and I've got enough problems with my body. Like, what am I doing? And that was it. That was the moment. And you just stopped cold turkey? I chose. So I was working at the ballet at the time. Um, I was playing piano. We had exams coming up. So it was going to be a very busy, stressful time. And so I picked the day that exams were going to be over for the students. And I wouldn't have to have that stress on me anymore. And that was April 7th of 2000. And I decided in that moment, like, that's my day. Wow. And so talk to us then about how running came into the picture. How did you introduce running amongst all of the the quitting smoking? Like, did you find it easy because you had running? Easier, I should say. I, I don't well, think. Well, okay. Sorry to interrupt you, Carolyn, but like, just let's frame this as to where you're at. You're on the couch, you're in pain, you're contemplating disability. You know, you can't, you're overweight. You're going through nicotine withdrawals. That's not when most people decide yeah. to take up running. Nope. <laughs> so, like, what was it that made you go, I feel like utter and complete and I'm going to start running now. So I had discovered going to the gym when I left music school because I was injured. And so I knew when I'm going to the gym, I feel good. And quitting smoking is terrible. Anybody who's quit smoking, like massive respect. It is awful. It is so hard. And so I knew like I didn't want to gain any more weight because I was quitting smoking. I knew that that's a thing. So if I go to the gym, maybe that, that won't be as much of an issue. So I joined a gym right away as soon as I quit smoking. But then I found that I started to really enjoy the movement. Okay. So you, you discovered that going to the gym actually made you feel good in the long run. How, what happened next? What, how did you move from, like, were you strength training at the gym? Were you sitting on a bike? Were you walking on the treadmill? What were you doing at the gym? Yeah. So it was 2000. So, um, not at all coordinated. So the classes didn't really work for me. <laughs> so I was like on the Stairmaster and on the elliptical and I was on okay. the treadmill because it was a teeny tiny little gym. There's never ever anybody else around. So I was kind of doing a little bit of everything. I found that I did actually really enjoy strength training from my previous experience. So I was doing a little bit of everything, but I was really focused on that piece. And then once I started running outside, it was like, why would anybody ever run on a treadmill? It's like all the things that are terrible about running and nothing that's fun about it. Like, why would you do that to yourself? Um, and so that was the end of that. I couldn't agree with you more. Like, just as an aside, right? like we have a treadmill and I use it like three times a year on like the very, very, very worst weather days if I have to get in a quality workout or something. But I just don't understand yes. these people that do like races on the treadmill and 24 hours on the treadmill and I'm just like no. oh my gosh like do you know how beautiful it is to run outside just go outside yeah. they have a mental strength I do not let me put it that way yeah, 30 <laughs> minutes is like four hours on the treadmill the worst yeah, absolutely okay so you quit smoking you started exercising doing cardio and that led you to where we started this podcast with doing more and more and more. Now you've dropped some hints here as to your career as a musician in your, in your um, early 
you know, first quarter of your life. Um, talk to us a little bit more about that because you, you were pretty serious as a child when it came to music. Tell us more. Yeah, I was very serious. So my instrument is piano. I started playing when I was four and I got pretty serious pretty quickly. Um, so by the time I was, I would say eight or nine, like grade three, I was practicing about three hours a day. I was about up to about six hours a day by the time I was in high school. And that was really my life was that. I went to Brandon University, which was sort of one of the premier music schools in the country at the time. I went on full scholarship and got there and promptly got injured. (laughs) So... My, I joke that like I got, I don't know, I feel like it makes me like a bit of an overachiever that I got an overuse injury in the days before they had really kind of been invented. So <laughs> nobody was talking about carpal tunnel. Nobody was, nobody could understand why, what do you mean you play the piano eight hours a day and your arms hurt? Like that's crazy. And that sounds insane to us now, but it was really, it really was the reaction that I got when I was at Brandon nobody knew what to do with us. And I was not the only one with injuries. No, you know, I crossed into that arena as a physio early in my career, and it was a whole new world, like these overuse injuries related to sustained postures and whatnot. There's a lot I want to ask on this. Why did you get into such intense dedication to music at a young age? You know, did it have anything to do with your arthritis? Was it one thing that you could do that didn't hurt? Was it your way of, I hate to say it, but overcompensating maybe for some of the things you couldn't do? I'm just curious. Or was it just an innate love of music? And that was it, as simple as that. I think it was a little bit of all of those things. I also think Kevin put it so well a number of years ago, and I've just like had this in my head ever since. He said to me once, like, Jen, we're like border collies. Like, you know how border collies, like, you have to give border collies work, right? They have to work really hard. They have to be doing something a lot. And if you if you try to keep a border collie in an apartment, they will destroy your home, right? And And I think there is a little bit of that in me. Not a little bit. There is quite a bit of that in me. So I have this for better or for worse, and it has served me both for better and for worse, this drive to do things a lot. Mm -hmm. And I think when I was a kid, I pointed that towards music. I did have some talent there. I really did love it. I did well. Um, I had some success and got a lot of attention for it and all of those things. So Um, It was a good way to channel that for me. So when you got, jumping forward now again to when you got injured, your body probably, even though a lot of people got injured, your body likely didn't deal with inflammation well right from the beginning because of your arthritis. (laughs) Um, Tell us about your experience with the athletic therapist at Brandon University. Oh, yeah. Steve Zubinski. He was amazing. So naturally, I was super comfortable with physios. Um, And so like, you're injured, so you go see the physio. Um, And so I went to the athletic therapist at Brandon, along with a violinist friend of mine, Uh, she and I were both there. And he was great. I mean, he was working with me and trying to like shaking his head quite a bit. But he ended up going to the dean of of, of the School of Music at Brandon at the time. 
and saying like, you've got to do something about this because I'm seeing more musicians than I'm seeing student athletes right now. Wow. And I, it has changed dramatically in the 30 years since I was at Brandon. Um, and in music education in general, this is something that we've gotten a lot better at because it's recognized that there was a real aesthetic around classical music, you know, this sort of you have to suffer for your art. And we put in just hours and hours and hours and it's almost like a contest of like, how much did you how much I was about to say train ultra running right like more 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 foreshadowing yes exactly (laughs) we all see where this is going um so but there really was an aesthetic about that at the time and I think um, music educators have gotten so much better about it and paying attention to things like posture and stretching and strength training and all of the rest of that So Steve got me started, but I did end up um, just so injured that there was no way that I could continue. I couldn't, I couldn't hold a pen. I had to drop conducting because I couldn't hold a baton or hold my hands up even to conduct. Um, None of those things were possible for me. So it was very clear that I was not going to finish a music degree. And I got pointed towards a clinic in Hamilton, Ontario, that had been started by a man named Dr. John Chong, who was originally a pianist who was a virtuoso, had a very promising career ahead of him, and then got injured in the 80s. And nobody could help him. So he went to medical school. And he opened up this clinic in Hamilton, Ontario for musicians with injuries. And so there were a few, yeah, it was great. I mean, it was the saddest place you've ever seen in your life. (laughs) Like All of these poor artists that can't like play their (laughs) instruments. I was there, like there was a bunch of, a bunch of the Toronto Symphony was there. Like I'm I'm maybe outing them, but like half of Blue Rodeo was there Mm, at the time. Like it was, it was a really um, important resource for, for musicians. So I spent some time there. They told me that, you know, probably I needed to, I was 19, I might want to think about doing something else with my life. Um, But one of the physios there, um, again, with the physios, um, Mm -hmm. said, sort of whispered to me, you know, I've had some people have some success with strength training. And maybe that's something you could try. This this physio was ahead of their time, (laughs) weren't they? He really was. Yeah. And he was very like... I, you know, at that point, I imagine I have a cousin who actually was a violinist for many years. And yeah, I can't think that she would dream of picking up a weight at that point. Nope. <laughs> as part of her, you know, you don't want huge biceps as you're doing this or yeah. whatever. So it must have been very out of left field, I'm assuming, at that point to you. Oh, 100%. But at that point, were you also not at the point where you were willing to try anything? Yeah, 100%. Because the other option they were offering me was, well, okay, we'll do this surgery where we take out your top rib. Oh, and then you can stay in this hospital and learn how to breathe for four months. I'm like, "Mm, maybe I'll go home and join the Y. Yeah. So okay. So did you do their their weightlifting protocol? And and how does the story end? I don't think you had to give up instruments because let me go back through the notes that you sent us. I believe you said the last time you and Kevin counted the ratio of musical instruments to humans in your house was like 19 to one. And there's just the two of us. (laughs) And that you're playing the ukulele these days. So (laughs) there is a happy ending. Shout out to the ukulele. (laughs) happiest instrument ever. Yeah. So Cole's notes, 
went home, joined the Y, was the only woman in the weight room because it was 1992. And nobody gave me a protocol. They didn't give me a training program. They were just like, just go lift weights. Like, okay. Um, And it was like me and a bunch of bodybuilders and this lovely man from Brandon sort of took me under his wing and like, taught me how to lift weights kind of and that was great and then over the you know and then my career shifted like obviously concert pianist is not in the cards anymore so we'll work in the arts and we'll work in the arts behind the scenes so I had a started building my career that way and at the same time was sort of looking at my technique and learning how to play the piano again in a way that didn't hurt me and sort of healing these injuries and then got to the point where I could play again and at that time, perfectly timed, um, the opportunity to audition uh, for the position of principal pianist at the ballet came up and I auditioned and I got the job. So did that for a bunch of years um, until that was sort of less fun. And so stopped doing that, went back behind the scenes uh, in the not-for-profit sector, and then started looking for a way to make music fun again. So uh, a friend of mine called me up and said, you know, I'm starting this this Irish band and do you want to maybe come sing backups? I thought, yeah, that could be fun. You know, so I'll come and sing a little bit and was playing a little bit of keyboard. And then uh, we got a fiddler and then we got a drummer who was Kevin. Um, and then we started playing out a little bit. And then one of the guys in the band went, you know what this band really needs? Like we need an accordion. And I thought, oh, well, I could probably figure that out. And so I bought an accordion and I learned accordion. And so all of a sudden now I've gone from like classical pianist to like Celtic rock band accordion chick um, <laughs> and having so much fun. <laughs> so now like music has become this thing that's just fun. And so I have a bunch of accordions and Kevin's a drummer. So he has a bunch of drums and um, yeah. And then we started buying ukuleles. Like they're just the happiest little instruments and uh, so I don't need to play out anymore, um, but ukulele in the kitchen, the best. It's the best. Well, you know, the very first ultra I ever did was uh, the Sun Mountain 50K in Winthrop, Washington. And I'm not lying. One of the serious hooks for me that made me knew I was going to be an ultra runner for a very long time was they had this band at the finish line. It was like yes. a bluegrass kind of... I don't know. There was like a cello. Somebody was twinging and a, a, a couple drums. And it was just the most eclectic mix of musical instruments. But it was so awesome. They played for hours as you know, at the finish line. So maybe you need to hit up Joel and say, you know what, I think at BFC this year, we need some entertainment. I like that idea. I see this, I this is going it. somewhere for sure. You heard it here first on Inspired Souls. Exactly. So let's tie all this together. You started your life as a child with rheumatoid arthritis. You ended up excelling as a musician, having to switch gears, change your career. You mentioned that now your arthritis really doesn't bother you. In fact, you've said um, to us before the podcast that it acts like an early weather warning system. I love that because in a way, it's almost a benefit to you because it tells you when you're getting off track. And I'd, I'd like to just maybe dive a bit deeper into that and then get into where you are now. Like now you've, you've run several ultras. You have not slowed down. You seem to me healthier than ever. So, you know, what does your arthritis warn you of? How do you know if you're getting off track? And what have you done to really sustain your health over the last several years? 
I definitely notice that when I'm, you know, when the stress is a little bit high or I'm not sort of really balanced in what I'm doing, then yeah, it's more likely to flare. But the weather piece is like the thumb. The thumb is the like, we're going to get rain. No, we're not. There's nothing in the forecast. The thumb. The thumb doesn't lie. (laughs) Hey, Shakira, it's not the hips don't lie. It's the thumbs don't lie. (laughs) The thumb does not lie. (laughs) Yeah, it's really, uh, I find that honestly, when it flares is the when I'm not moving. Uh, I really like motion is lotion. I 100% believe in that. The times when I don't feel like moving is the times that I need to do it the most. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. cannot slack on the, as much as I'd love to, because it's not my favorite. I cannot slack on the strength training. I can't slack on the mobility stuff. I really can't slack on the mobility stuff. I need to do that. And I think that's, that is absolutely, a, I'll say it, a, a gift of my arthritis that Um, I know that I can't cut corners in those areas. So it is something that I have to stay on top of, especially running the miles that I'm running. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm hearing from you that your arthritis is definitely not an excuse for you. It's a reason for you to get out and move. Totally. 100%. I just want to let that sink in there. That's huge, right? Like how, how many times do we use our aches and pains and our niggles to go, well, I can't do this because, and I can't do that because, and you know, I'm not meant to do this because I'm not built that right or whatever, you know, you've, you've gone and you've taken a, a recipe that definitely in the first couple decades of your life didn't seem to add up to ultra running. And then nope. here you are, right? <laughs> Um, so let's talk about some of your, your running achievements. Like what are your, what things stand out to you? What are you most proud of? Oh boy. Um, thank you for that, Kim. I like, that's, that means a lot to me to look at, look at it that way. Um, you're right. I mean, if you looked at me, you know, it's not like there's a great, you know, a grand tradition of French Canadian runners or something. You know what I mean? Like if you saw me at the bus stop, you would not say, oh my God, there's an athlete. You know, I am not a Ferrari. I'm a 1973 Honda Civic, but I do the best with the hand that I've been dealt, right? So what that looks like, I definitely started on the roads. Um, I ran a ton of halves. I would think probably in the 40s anyway of halves. Um, I've run 12 fulls. Um, in 2016, I got sort of close to what I thought could be a BQ time. So really started training hard towards that. Um, it took me six tries, <laughs> but I finally did get my Boston qualifying time in 2017 And then in a cruel twist that I'm sure a lot of your listeners will be able to relate to, it wasn't by enough. Um, You had to be 4.52 under the qualifying time that year. And so, yeah, and that was, you know, that's a high point and a low point, I think, that BQ, because it was, I was so proud of myself. I worked so hard for that time. I took probably, um, you know, it's that many years ago and I'm getting emotional thinking about it. I took... I took half an hour off my marathon in three years, two and a half, like half an hour off my marathon and ran the race of my life. Like my, my BQ was an eight minute personal best and it still wasn't enough. And and I, I couldn't agree with you more that it's, it is a cruel system (laughs) in the way that they have it because it's like here, here's the bar shoot for this bar 
and then you you exceed the bar and you're it's still not good enough like it's just yeah oh it just adds insult to injury right like you're so excited and then you're you're so let down and I feel like there has to be another way like there has to be a way where they can make the BQ such that everybody who gets it gets in you know and I've heard different people talk about this yeah Let's just take this moment for me, the trail runner, that I know about this thing. I know about you can qualify but not qualify. But break it down for me again. So how does it work? Is it based on number of people that qualified and then they can still only have so many people that get in and so the average time ends up being significantly less? Is that how it works? Sort yeah, basically. So what they do, so the year that I ran it, my BQ time was 355 based on my age. And what they do is they take the fastest qualifiers. So if you were 20 minutes under 355, you get to register on Tuesday. And if you were 15 minutes, you get to register on Wednesday. So I wasn't even allowed to register. But then what they do is they they fill up. Right. They fill up with the fastest people. And I think that's why you've seen all of the BQ times come down across the board to try to avoid some of this heartache, truthfully, that happens right. when when people yeah. think that they're in, but they're not, you know, like as you're alluding to, yeah. it's crushing. It really was. Okay. So what did you do after that? You took that, that disappointment and you, you uh, took the lemons and turned it into lemonade, didn't you? Yeah, I did. Um, so <laughs> I was like, okay, well, we're just going to go over here on some dirt and lick our wounds for a minute. <laughs> Um, go hide in the forest. <laughs> yeah, I'm just gonna go hide in the forest and never come out again. Um, so, uh, so that's that's essentially what happened. So, what I was finding when I was training for all those BQ attempts, I was running more and more trails, and I was really enjoying those pieces of my roots. And so, after that kind of the heartbreak of the BQ, but the not BQ, I was like, okay, well, let's let's try something different. And I really did think it was going to be a break. You know, I do this for a year and then try again. No. Um, so in 2018, I trained for, and I think actually, Kim, this is the summer that I saw you at Beaudry. I ran the Beaudry Fall Classic. So I registered for the six hour, which I think is just such a perfect entry yes. into trail and ultra, right? Because it's just a smidge longer you're not going to get lost. You don't have to worry about the distance. You just like run for as long as you feel like it. And then you go home. Like it's great. So that was the first one. <laughs> I'm chuckling because most people would like, I feel like stopping at 30 minutes, not six hours, but <laughs> well, I hear you. Especially in 2018 and even worse in 2019. I didn't run it in 2019, but in 2018 it was like, it had been raining for four days. It was like, it we were like, horrendous. <laughs> it was such a mess. And I loved it so much. Like I got to that start line and Joel was like, where's all the six hour people and like the 12 of us in the event kind of wander over. And he's like, is this everybody? Yeah. Okay go. (laughs) I was like, oh, these are my people. Like, this is my scene. (laughs) This is what I need right now. And then we like run into the forest and it's like absolute muck out there. It was like filthy. It was so much fun. 
It was so much fun. <laughs> and yeah, I just never looked back. And so when you say there's a few things I'm intrigued about, about that story, <laughs> I love the idea of a timed run. And I don't, you don't see this in road running ever, right? It's always the distance. Yeah. And then you get obsessed about yeah. what time and what pace and all that stuff. But a, a timed run seems to be from the little I know about trail running seems to be kind of a, a common format. And I love it. I, um, so when you say that those were your people, like you knew that when he drew the line in the, in the mud with his heel or whatever and said, <laughs> okay, you 12, off you go. Good luck in the mud. Um, you're like, I'm home. These are my people. Yeah. So tell us yeah. more about how you knew that this was your tribe. I almost want to like ask him that question. <laughs> I'm really interested to hear your answer because it was the exact same for me at yeah. Sun Mountain. It was kind of like, there's the start line, go. Yeah. And I was just, it was so chill. And so, I mean, we were yeah. still like intense, like we're still running yeah. a race, Yeah, but it, it was just a different energy. I don't know. Yeah. I think after like three years of being obsessed with time and splits and then like, Boston was like, you're good enough if you get this time, but actually you're not. And you need to, you know, like all of that kind of like the, the rigidity of that mm -hmm. to get into just like, here's a bunch of muddy people who are going to like go run around in circles in the park for some reason. And nobody cares how, I mean, not in my, I'm sure there are people at the front of the pack that care in my little, <laughs> you know, sort of strata Nobody cares. Nobody says what's your 50K PB because it's not, it, it doesn't matter. A 50K where Kim lives mm -hmm. versus a 50K at Beaudry mm -hmm. versus a 50K in, in Europe, like these are totally different events. And so it doesn't matter. It becomes irrelevant. Or even Beaudry 2018 versus Beaudry in 2021 was a completely different race too, right? Wet, dry. Oh my God. Yeah. And I can't, I can't even, you know, get over just picturing the world you lived in as a pianist for the Royal Winnipeg Ballet, right? <laughs> you can't get more controlled nope. than ballet. <laughs> and much. everything to the, you know, the hundreds of a second has to hit on time and the position and how you look. And then it's go for six hours and play in the mud and it doesn't matter how you look. You know, I think there's, there's things to learn in both worlds, but maybe that's just what your soul needed at that point. I don't know. Totally. And, you know, I will say the people that introduced me to Baudry as a concept, I didn't even know it existed. Two friends of mine from music school were running it, which is interesting. Really? Yes. Um, there seems to be a correlation. <laughs> like, it's this is my own personal theory. I think it goes back to that little um, the border collie kind of impulse, yeah, right? That if yeah, you have yeah. that in you, if you're going to do well in classical music, the reality is it does take a lot of hours. And so you already have that discipline. You already have that habit. Um, you already have that drive. And when you're not doing that anymore, it's sort of, you need to point it at something. And yeah, I, I knew of the existence of ultras, because of my friends, John Blythe and Donna Lowe, who I was at music school with in Brandon. Well, it's almost like the endurance that you had in that other world, yeah. the music world, right? Even though it's a very different type of endurance, 
the the mindset that you were bringing to the endurance of ultra running was the same and had already been grooved and practiced to some degree. Well, and you knew that input equaled output. Yeah. You'd done the work as a musician. You knew when you put in the work, you saw the results. Exactly. And you have a certain amount of talent and you have a certain amount of work, right? And so I have incredibly limited talent as an athlete. I, that, and I'm not down, like I do, I I have a very small amount of talent, but I have an incredible capacity for work. Mm -hmm. And I love the work. I love the training. Mm -hmm. I love the routine. I love everything about it. And so because I have a, I, I love the work, my limited amount of training, I can, I limited amount of talent. I can bring that up and music, music works exactly the same way. That's so, so interesting because a lot of people come at it the opposite, right? Like they want a result. And it even sounded like with your BQ and everything that may have been, you were very outcome driven when you were road running and then to, to bring the process oriented mindset to your ultra running, the results will come, won't they? Like when you put in all of that hard work, it doesn't matter what talent you're bringing to the table, you're going to improve on that because of the hard work, but it's really falling in love with that process. And then the outcome will be what it is, right? Is that what you found? Yeah, exactly. Totally. hundred percent. And, you know, I, I had the misfortune of getting into ultra running, like right before the pandemic. Right. So I did my first one in the fall of 2018, 2019, I was registered for Oxbow 50K and then Epic Eastgate 25K because I didn't think I could do 250. I hadn't even really done a 50K yet. So I didn't think two in one month was probably a good idea. And then I was going to do a fall race. Um, I ended up, uh, I actually got pneumonia early in 2019, kicked my butt. So ended up uh, not doing those races. And then I was injured in the fall and ended up doing my first real ultra in Grand Forks, I did the end trails 12 hour in the fall of uh, 2019 after having been injured. Um, so I thought like, it may be that I'm going to Grand Forks to run a 10K. We'll see. <laughs> Just like take whatever my body gives me on the day. And I ended up getting 70. So that was great. But then ever since. Yeah, like, like she just like quickly like brushed over that injured. I ended up getting 70. 70K was fine. <laughs> It's really fun. But then 2020, of course, all all virtuals. How'd you find that? It was interesting because I do all my training by myself. I like running by myself. I'm like very, very comfortable doing that. And so to do virtual races was like, okay, (laughs) it's like a little bit less stressful. I can start when I want to start. Baudry, 24 hours starts at like 11 in the morning, which is so late. So when I ran it virtually, it was like, well, I'm going to start at five. Like a normal person, like start at 5 a.m. Like you should. Take um, advantage of those cooler hours. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So in 2020, it was, uh, yeah, I did two virtual 50Ks and then Baudry was a, I wasn't ready for 24 hours then. Um, wasn't ready for 24 hours this year. That's another story. Um, but in 2020, um, my goal was 100K and I did that virtually as well. So I have one just kind of off the wall question. Do you listen to music as you run? (laughs) I do. So, um, but I use it very strategically. So I listen to a lot of podcasts. Um, I have certain ones, including yours, that I save for long runs. And then I put music on at the end. I have a playlist that is like, 
I don't know, it's like seven hours. There is every single genre imaginable. I was just going to ask you that. Yeah. <laughs> There's some stuff that is like super embarrassing. <laughs> you don't discriminate like, when it comes to music? <laughs> as long as it's good. Like as long as it's good, I'm like pretty much into anything. But it may, when I put that playlist on shuffle, it makes for some pretty interesting comments. <laughs> so like rap, country, <laughs> like all of it? Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, there's classical on there. I love the Hamilton soundtrack. Pro tip: oh, listen okay. to the entire. This is a tip from my friend Donna. Hamilton soundtrack while you're doing a long run is amazing. And I I wear the like I wear the aftershocks headphones. Mm-hmm. I just want to put that out there. I run in the woods, so I do have my ears open. But because I run by myself, like bears are, you know, it's something you need to think about. Um, and so I will sing along with my headphones, which has led to some <laughs> embarrassing moments coming along, <laughs> hikers and stuff, rapping in the woods by myself. You just made me remember that that's one of the things we talked about as we passed each other in circles Did was it? our air shocks. Yes. Yes. They're the best. You know, I think animals can hear them. I get different reactions from dogs when I pass wearing earbuds that are like the normal Apple Pods versus Air Shocks. I think dogs can hear my oh, Air Shocks more. I bet they can. Yeah. Okay. So if somebody's listening to this and they're on the fence about trail running or ultra running, they're a road runner, let's say, who's become a little bit tired of the grind, the perpetual BQs, yeah. the obsession about time and pace. Uh, what message do you have for that runner? I mean, I'm biased, but like the thing is, and this is what I love about this, right? Is that you can always go back. Mm -hmm. Like my break, maybe I still am on my break from road running and maybe I will go back. You know, the New York City Marathon was just this past weekend and I have a friend who lives there and she said, you know, maybe one day. And I was like, yeah, maybe one day we'll run New York together. That would be fun. Mm -hmm. But you can always go back. But if you're burnt out and if you're tired and most importantly, if you're not having fun anymore, like come and run in the mud, like come and give it a try. And maybe you'll do one race and you'll hate it and that's fine, but then you'll know. Right. So I really, I love that about, about what we do is that you can always try something different. I've tried, I've tried five K's and 10 K's. I hate them. Mm -hmm. It's just not for like, I hate it. They hurt too much. Mm -hmm. I don't want it. I want to hurt a little bit for a very long time (laughs) as opposed to hurting that much to try to go fast. So like mad respect, but like, so yeah, I, I think just try it. I think the timed race, if you're, if you're interested in dipping your toes in ultra, the timed race is an amazing way to go. It gives you such a good introduction because it's so non-threatening, yeah. right? That yeah. you're done at six hours or whenever you finish. Yeah. It, it's not like you failed. There's no such thing as a DNF. Yeah. If you get out there and you run one loop and you're done, that you ran one loop. Mm-hmm. That's your result. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, you are definitely inspiring me to think about broadening my horizons in in the types of events that I choose for sure. And I'm I'm sure I'm not alone because you've you've definitely been a good spokesperson for the trail and ultra world. So on that note, what is coming up next for you? I am, it'll be the third year in a row that I'm registering for the Oxbow 50K at the beginning of May and the Epic Eastgate 50K at the end of May. I really hope I actually get to run them both this year. (laughs) So that's going to be my spring. 
uh, if everything goes according to plan. I'd like to do something longer in the fall because in 2023, I at the right at the beginning of 2023, I have a pretty big birthday. I'm turning 50 in January of 2023, and I'd really like to run 100 miles in that year. So that's been, and that's kind of been the goal all along. I am fascinated by that distance. I am so, I'm so excited about trying that. And my 50th year seems like a good time to do it. Well, you've laid some good groundwork so far. And um, do you, like, you don't have to share it here if you don't want, but do you have a race in mind already or is, are you trying to decide which one? Still researching right now. I'm leaning towards, I'm, I love the, um, the Yeti Mm. races, that race director and just the spirit of those races is so awesome. Um, There's a whole bunch of hundred milers that look they're so gorgeous, Rain. There's so many. I just have to balance the um, fact that I live on the prairies. Yes. With there's so many, so many garbage hill repeats you can do, right? Yeah, and it's just not the same as a four mile climb. You know? yeah. <laughs> All of well, them, at so. altitude too. Like at you can altitude. train your legs on a stairmaster for hours, but yeah. you can't train them at ten thousand feet. <laughs> Right. And that's the challenging thing. But it's possible. It, it is, is totally possible. possible. Anything's possible. Um, yes. Well, that is an awesome goal for anybody turning 50 to set for themselves. So um, I have no doubt that uh, you will achieve it. So we're nearing the end of our time together here. And as a longtime listener of the Inspired Souls podcast, you know what's coming next, don't you? I'm ready. <laughs> okay. So we're going to jump into our rapid fire questions. We'll see how rapid we can keep them. Um, <laughs> let's start off with what is your favorite running mantra? This is what's happening right now. I love that. Like no judgment. I'm not trying to make it okay. Just this is what's happening right now. Yep. Right? Like, and it's going to pass, mm. whatever it is. This is what's happening right now. Love it. Just gets you right into acceptance, right? <laughs> this is happening. Yep. Okay. Do you have a favorite place to run? Yes. Um, I love the trails um, in the White Shell right now. I've been running like Falcon Lake, High Lake, West Hawk, all the way to Caddy. Like those, they, they go on forever. Yeah. Um, that's a really, really special place to me. Um, we lost our dad in 2019 and we spread his ashes at Falcon Lake. So it, I always feel really close to him there. So yeah, th- that's my absolute favorite. It's just a gorgeous, gorgeous part of the world. I have to agree with you. It's a very, very special place. All right. Do you have a bucket list race? Oh, there's so many. <laughs> and again, it's like that balancing the dream race with the reality. But Okay, um, so let's forget reality. Okay, forget reality? Yeah. UTMB. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that race is so gorgeous it's just and I've never seen mountains like that and I've never been in those landscapes like UTMB is unbelievable um so yeah that's the that's if we're putting reality to the side I don't even have to think about it UTMB cool awesome do you have a favorite running book or movie 
Yes, I have a favorite book and a favorite Marnie movie. My favorite movie is Ethan Newberry's uh, Amongst the Evergreens about oh, his experience yeah. running the Cascade Crest 100. I've watched it many, many times. I usually watch it the week of a race. Um, I just find him so relatable. Um, and just his experience, I just find super inspiring. So I love that movie. I love David and Megan Roach's The Happy Runner. Okay. Yeah. Um, is a wonderful book, um, as is Jason Coop's, uh, what is it, Training Essentials for Ultra Running. Um, that book is sort of, yeah, that's a really great one. And too. both of them have podcasts too. I listen to both of their podcasts. Yes. Yeah. As do so I. So we wonderful. should rephrase that running book, movie, or podcast. Yes. <laughs> All three of them have podcasts. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> You know, you're one of the first to bring up Ethan Newberry and the Ginger Runner, and I'm surprised it hasn't come up before okay. now, but he does have some great content out there. It's so wonderful. Yeah. yeah. So he wonderful. actually has a whole, um, what do you call it? Running, not soundtrack, but yeah, album. like albums. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. He does yeah. all the music for his films and yeah, yeah, I just, I love the way he, um, he tells stories. All right, we have one last question here, and that is, what is your favorite post-run indulgence? Okay, I have a food one and a non-food one, because I feel like as runners, we like always default to the food ones. So my food one, um, Shorty's in the town of Falcon Lake has the best sweet potato fries I've ever had in my entire life. So like if I've done like a six or, you know, six hour run out there, hot dog and sweet potato fries from Shorty's, like the best non-running I love to come home after a long run and just like lie on the couch and watch <laughs> NFL I'm like a massive football fan um so just like earned laziness lying on the couch watching football is the best especially if the Steelers you're playing <laughs> all right the Steelers are not you, the Blue Bombers I just gonna oh, say the Blue Bombers, Bombers are like cleaning <laughs> up this season <laughs> I know nothing about football by the way but I do know that our home team is the Blue Bombers also awesome yes go blue and go Steelers <laughs> oh wow well this I knew this was going to be a good chat and uh, now I'm really kicking myself for not running with you more around Beaudry Park but we are both self-professed um running introverts who like to run alone so it's probably <laughs> <laughs> anyways um Jen you shared some really interesting thoughts some interesting perspective from multiple planes <laughs> of vantage points in your life and I think a lot of listeners no matter where you are or what age or what experience you've had can can kind of identify with certain things that you said in this podcast so I want to thank you for coming on, sharing your story. And I know you've encouraged people by doing it. And uh, I just wish you, we wish you all the best uh, in your next year and a half until you turn 50 and beyond. Amazing. Thank you so much. 